Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. On this Memorial Day holiday show, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk about some of the top stories of the week. Joining us, as always, is Bloomberg sports reporter Eben Novi williams But we also have a special guest host with us on this holiday special. He is the managing director and member of Houlihan's Loki's Technology Media Telecom Group. He is a recognized industry leader and innovator in digital sports media and technology. Chris Russo, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you. I want to start with the Carolina Panthers. Woohoo! The NFL team. Why are you cheering the Panthers? Because I like the Panthers. I it, thought well, you're not a Panthers well, guy. No, I no, I'm a Detroit Lions fan. Oh, so you have nothing to root for? Got well, it. No. Okay. Oh, oh, so, oh lordy. Anyway, the NFL team leaders unanimously approved David Tepper's 2.2 billion dollar record purchase. That was pretty much a no-brainer in this case. Uh, should we get Chris in here right away? Now, Chris, you do this sort of stuff. By the way, I didn't know all that stuff about you in the intro. That, that was really impressive. Industry you know? leader stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, normally it's just Chris. <laughs> hey, Chris, how you doing? But by the way, wait, Bar, I can't quite see you in this line of. But you are the only person wearing a jacket and tie today, Chris. Uh, thank you. Th- thanks for coming in all dressed up. Appreciate it. But is that if I'm the NFL, I'm the other NFL owners. Am I happy at two three or am I not happy at two three? Am I saying, wait a minute, only two three? Uh, there probably is some level of disappointment, in part because some of the numbers that were initially thrown out there were high twos. Could it even reach $3 billion? So there might have been some expectation of those kind of higher numbers. And also, when you look at some of the recent NBA deals that are in the low twos, I think there might have been a sense that, hey, maybe we should achieve more. But I think all things considered, when you look at the last deal, which was, I think, a billion four for the Bills, this is still nice appreciation. And they've got a really good partner in David Tepper. Yeah, Tepper, you wanted, and this would be my disappointment, and Eben we talked about this. If I'm an NFL guy and uh, a team comes on the market, and in an unexpected way, like much like the Clippers situation where there was this froth and all of a sudden the team was available and people really are hurried and scurried to see if they can get involved, they had three bidders at the end. Re- realistically, they had three, three to four bidders, but only one whale. I mean, not that Michael Rubin isn't a billionaire, but, you know, one point whatever, billion two, whatever. I mean, Tepper is the kind of guy you want to attract in an auction like this. You want multiple Teppers, guys with real money, and have to compete against each other to drive that price up. But he didn't have to do that. He sort of sat back and waited to see how it would play out. Well, it swings both ways, doesn't it? I mean, there's a chance that one of those other groups, maybe Kestenbaum, maybe Navarro, would have played a bigger number in the end if they could have raised the money. Uh, but in the end, you, you know... The, but that, you, the just said the, you just said the key there. If, if they raised the money. Only sure. one guy had the money to write the check. No, I'm with you. I mean, obviously, you'd rather have a lot of guys with the liquidity to do it on their own and bring cash to the table, etc. Um, it didn't happen that way. But, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, sometimes maybe you prefer the bid that might be a couple hundred million dollars less if it's from a guy who has the money all himself and doesn't need to kind of go around to a bunch of other people to get it together. I guess I'll throw this out on the table. David Tepper said the name of the team, the Carolina Panthers, and we're going to stay in the Carolinas. However, having said all that, the stadium is 22 years old. Will they move one day? Russo, you know this. Uh, you know, I don't think so. I think there's really deep roots to that community. And again, getting into the weeds on what the ultimate stadium will be or not be is still something TBD. But I think Tepper wants to keep the team there. I think the NFL wants the team there. And I think ultimately they'll figure out the stadium situation, is, is my view. And you know, Chris, the differentiator in the NFL between the Cowboys and the rest of the folks who wind up being in, in kind of the lower third of the group is the stadium revenue. 
I mean, the Panthers used to be, when that stadium was first built, that was like top-tier team in terms of revenue. You share the national stuff evenly. So the national contracts get, get cut up, and everybody shares in that. If you're going to differentiate yourself, you got to build Jerry's world, and you got to figure out how do I make more local revenue than my competition. That, like the luxury suites, those I can keep. All that money stays in my coffers. And that's true, and team owners do spend a lot of time thinking about that. But over the last you know, 25 years, think about how many new stadiums have been built. It ultimately gets figured out. There's oftentimes bluster in the press about we might move or we need this or we need that. But ultimately, it, it does tend to get figured out with these kind of franchises. Also, let's be honest about the, the size of the market. No matter what Tepper does with the Carolina Panthers, they're never going to be what Jerry's doing down in Dallas. You know, the, the city is just a very different city. The fans are yeah, a little got different. Corporate banking. Not... They got banking headquarters. Sure, it's, it, it might be there. better than Buffalo or Jacksonville, but there, there's no amount of stadium innovation that is going to let the Carolina Panthers make local revenue the way that the Dallas Cowboys do. No, but they certainly don't need to be bottom third. If they had a new facility, they'd be right back in the top third. There's, there's things they can do. And I have this from somebody familiar with the transaction. I can tell you that the fact that legalized sports betting, which we're going to talk about later, I don't want to get into that topic now, but that was very attractive to David Tepper. He sees not only a real estate opportunity with this purchase, but he sees things he can do with sports betting as well, which kind of drove his bid up a little higher than where he wanted to be originally. As it should be. I mean, we've talked about Mark Cuban saying that franchise valuations were going to double. Uh, that seems a little bit aggressive to me, but there's no question. I mean, if we talk about local revenue, if, if North Carolina were to legalize sports gambling, there's going to be a ton of sponsorship dollars that are going to flow to the Carolina Panthers that were not available to Jerry Richardson. Chris, because you jump, let me, let me, you tell me. Mark Cuban, hyperbole or not hyperbole, franchise values will double. I, I sent him the email, and I said, Mark, we'd like to use you, but I don't want to quote hyperbolic stuff. And he said it's not hyperbole. I don't think they're going to double overnight. I do think there's going to be increased value, and I think that will be reflected as the realities of what those revenue streams really are. So I think immediately there is some bump in value, but I think it'll take two or three years for those kind of dramatic numbers to impact what actually gets paid for in terms of teams. So you're David Tepper. What are you doing? Well, I think David Tepper, you know, right now is getting himself familiar with the organization, getting the right folks in place to make sure it's his culture and his vision of the team. I think that's probably job one is in terms of people and personnel and culture. And then I think you're basically getting your arms around the stadium issue. I think you're looking at local sponsorship, some of the local radio and other media rights that you own. And in terms of the gambling thing, I think it's not clear whether that will be handled on a league level or a local level. But if it's handled on a local level, I think that also represents a pretty big opportunity opportunity in, in, in the near term. Talk about revenue. Sunday Night Football, they just came out. Some of the best ratings ever. I mean, it beat American Idol and all this and that, whatever. What's on in your hi- in your household? I think I know. It, Dancing with the Stars. Yeah, Dancing with yeah, the Stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still saying, this isn't Monday Night Football. What happened? Barr has no control of the remote control in his household. All right, Barr, let's move on. Joining in on the conversation is, as always, Bloomberg sports reporter Evan Noe Williams, along with our special guest host, Chris Rousseau. Chris, if you didn't know your title, by the way, you're managing director and member of Houlihan Loki's Technology, Media, and Telecon Group. Now I'm out of breath. That's a long title. It is a long title. You know what's a long time coming? Sports betting. Thank you very much. I don't need the praise on air. You're all looking really. I did very well in the segue. Sports betting, Rousseau. Did you think it was coming? Did you think it was coming now? And can you overestimate the impact it will have on the entire sports world? I I 
believed that the Supreme Court was going to rule this way, so I'm not surprised. But it's almost like hard to believe it actually happened. So I think in the industry there was some expectation, but at the same time there's also some shock that the world is actually different. So I, I do think it's going to have a transformational impact on the sports industry, on sports business. To kind of put it in somewhat of perspective, there's a lot of reports out there that say that the amount of betting going on illegally is like $150 billion in the U.S., offshore or in whatever ways. When you think about that $150 billion versus the billion or $2 billion that was going on in daily fantasy, and we all remember every day, every commercial that happened in those games and the, and the amount of saturation. Are we, we going to see that again? Is it going to be William Hill and DraftKings and, and Patty? Are we going to see this again? I think you very well could be. Not exactly in that same way. Maybe they learned I think, something I think from... there have been some lessons. There's not the guys with the big check over their head and, uh, you know, I'm going to win a million dollars, but really more about the engagement and the fun of it. I, I think you will see a lot of media and advertising over time. Cha-ching! That's where the fantasy sports industry, for lack of a better term, screwed up. Because it was a nice industry going, and then all of a sudden they brought these commercials in. You can win a million dollars, and everybody is going crazy. And then all of the legislators are like, well, wait a minute. Evan, you know more than anybody else in this room about this. Who won, who lost, and who set up nicely? Man, I mean, there's tons of winners. No pressure, though. Uh, the uh, No question that your your Vegas, your big Vegas companies, William Hill, MGM, Caesars, uh, they're going to look good. Uh, DraftKings certainly positioning themselves. They, they put up advertising last week uh, for the first time on New Jersey Turnpike at Penn Station. You know, at airports, making it clear. But what makes that, sense about people don't understand what it's, they have the customers, right? That's what makes. I mean, they they say they have the customers. They've got a, a, certainly have a, a fan a, a client list that is young, uh, used to gaming online, used to giving their credit card over. But if you were to compare DraftKings' client list to what MGM sits on in Las Vegas, there's no question that you'd prefer to have the casino's uh, database. Uh, but sure, DraftKings has experience over the past couple years pitching games in states that, that don't have casinos or that MGM and William Hill have zero presence in. They have a group of team dedicated to building online games that cater to millennials. That's the audience that all these gambling companies are really looking to reach. Um, there is certainly an argument to be made for, for DraftKings and, and, to an extent, FanDuel being well-positioned for this. Uh, on the other side of that coin, William Hill has been around for decades and decades. It's the, one of the biggest gambling companies in the world. You know, they, they operate a third of the sports book money in Vegas. And they're ready to roll in Jersey. Exactly. They, they, they have a place in Jersey uh, at Monmouth Park, um, so, you know, yeah, casinos are going to be well-positioned also. Then you have kind of this big unknown, and Chris, I'd love to hear your thoughts here as well. What other companies out there, maybe it's a media company, um, maybe it's an online digital company, a social media company, other companies that might look at this and say, you know what, we're well-positioned here. We've got a huge client base. Maybe we start offering this as well. Yeah, well, I think the large media companies are going to benefit just in the same way they benefited when all the daily fantasy money got spent. Obviously, they'll have to customize and target ads to local states, but I think that's certainly doable. Uh, I think you'll, you know, one of the t tough subjects is how will it benefit or not the leagues and the teams. I think what you'll see fairly early on is teams getting approached about local sponsorships the same way they got approached by Daily Fantasy. And the issue for the, for the leagues will be, do we let that activity happen state by state from a marketing standpoint, or do we control all of that nationally? So, Russell, I think tell me about that integrity fee they came out with. I mean, we've had the guys from William Hill call it a money grab and like, come on, give me a break. They operate in places where there are bets. Was that a mistake? Poorly phrased, poorly rolled out? 
you, you, tell, you, you know, you tell I, I think look, I think there's a larger issue, which is you know, have the leagues been able to get in front of all of this, or are they now chasing it? I think some of the leagues were trying to get out of, in front of it a couple of years ago, including Adam Silver. I think others were less aggressive about it. I think they truly are interested in integrity, but now I think they find themselves chasing the opportunity. I do think the leagues have a lot to provide in terms of their data, in terms of their that's marketing assets. That's, as we talked about earlier, the one thing you really need here is is going to be the data. That is their intellectual property. That can be sold on a global basis. There are companies like Sport Radar doing it now. By the way, investors in Sport Radar, Mark Cuban, um, Ted Leonsis, Michael Jordan, folks we know. Yeah. So I think that there are great things that the leagues have to offer and provide here. I think they just have to be careful about overreaching like they did in the fantasy space where they tried to assert rights and then basically the court said, oh, this is all public domain. So I think they have to be smart about what they assert and what they actually sell in this context. And I think we can, I mean, the, the basic facts here are that the leagues are going to make more money in the total off of this than whatever the cost it's going to take to maintain integrity within their sport. That seems unequivocally accurate. Uh, If the leagues want money because they think it's a royalty or because it's just people making money off of their games, that's one thing. And I think that's the big mistake the leagues made originally with this integrity fee, is that they tried to couch it originally as this thing that they needed, money that they needed to have because they needed to maintain uh, the sanctity and integrity of their sport. That's not true. But as they've kind of positioned it again as a, as a royalty, as a licensing payment, uh, they may get more traction with that. Well, here's the big debate that fantasy sports geeks like me have been talking about. Ever since this has been legalized now for regular betting, is this the end of fantasy sports, especially daily fantasy sports? I don't think it's the end of daily fantasy. I think there are just different kinds of activities. I think there are people who believe fantasy is a little bit more skill-based, requires a little bit more analysis, a little bit deeper involvement. And so I do think fantasy will continue to grow, but I don't think it will grow at the rate it had been growing. And I do think the explosive kind of dynamic in the sports industry will be gambling and prop betting, in-game betting, which I think we have not really talked about or thought a lot here in the U.S. Actually, overseas in the U.K., more betting happens after the game starts than before. I love the, the line Cuban said where he, when somebody asked him about you know the legalized sports betting. He said, ah, finally going to a baseball game is going to be fun again. Now, he likes to take shots at Major League Baseball. But how funny, if you can just sit there just pushing 25 cents at whatever you want to bet, but is this guy going to strike out? Is this guy going to hit a home run? And the algorithms are spinning as it goes. The odds are changing. You could, you could see where the engagement will soar. I think I think it's going to be a big advantage. It's going to take time for that all to shake out, but I think it's going to be good for the leagues in that regard. Going back to what Chris just said real quick on, on Daily Fantasy, I think you're definitely right. You're, the, the hardcore fantasy players are going to continue to do it because they like the, the gameplay, and it is a little bit more skill-based than, than, than sports gambling. The problem they're going to have is that all the casual players, the guys whose money they take Hello. in these drafting <laughs> pools, are going to transfer over to sports gambling. A lot of those people viewed DFS, Daily Fantasy, as just a proxy uh, waiting until they could regularly bet on the Cowboys minus 5 or the Giants plus 12. When that all shakes out and the DFS pool is suddenly just professionals, I think they may see a totally different return on investment uh, in Daily Fantasy. One quick note I wanted to add to that is that when you play Daily Fantasy sports, you really don't care who wins or loses the game. What you're caring about is your player, how well does that player do? 
Now, with betting, it, yeah, it's like you said. Well, that's what like, one of our guests said. It gives you a reason to watch the Cleveland Browns when they're 0-13, the fourth quarter, down by 25. I mean, well, yeah, over-under, how your guy is going to do, you have a reason to watch. Let's talk about sports rights and <laughs> the fees. They continue to go up and up and up. Is there a ceiling? Let's put it that way. Well, I, I think before this month, people thought maybe. And with all of the, the, the cord cutting that was going on and some of the challenges that ESPN was having, there was some notion that maybe we've hit a peak or a wall in terms of sports rights growth. But now with the UFC deal with ESPN, the rumored WWE deal, there, there's a sense that maybe we still have growth ahead of us, surprisingly. So, uh, again, I think a lot of industry experts three, four months ago were saying it's kind of a bearish outlook for sports media rights, but now I think that might be changing. Chris, WWE shot up like 9%. They're getting, what, 3 Fourfold increase on their deal. We're talking 250, 200 plus whatever million dollars annually, over a billion over five years. This, by the way, for what in essence is scripted drama. Uh, do we put it under? Where do you put it under sports entertainment? What do you put WWE under? I think it is sports, but I think sports is entertainment. I think they're, they're, they're merging and melding, and I think it's really about attracting an audience that advertisers want to spend money in and, and viewers want to see. So I don't think that distinction is so important as it is the, the audience and the advertising. So it's demo, 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 and WWE definitely skews younger. Mm-hmm. Yep. All the properties that, that you, you mentioned in the intro, those are all premium sports properties. You know, UFC, WWE, we've seen these increases for a lot of other content in the U.S. as well. How about for that second tier down. I mean, if you look at the past five years, the rights fees that we've seen go down significantly are your smaller conference NCAA, you know, your conference USA, your Sun Belt, you know, schools like that. Uh, does this mean that they may go up as well, or are we seeing this big schism between premium and non-premium? Well, content? there certainly is, and I think historically has been somewhat of a schism between the biggest properties like the NFLs of the world and some of the mid-tier properties. The question going forward, it will be, what does the combination of traditional TV rights and digital rights look like? Some of those second-tier properties may be really conducive to the ESPN Pluses of the world and other digital outlets. So on a combined basis, they may still do well, even though the traditional TV rights may be lower. Now, for old geezers like me who just binge-watched The Rifleman, and I really <laughs> did, is the, is the audience not even paying attention to me anymore when it comes to something like this? When you see the Geritol ads, you'll know they're paying attention to you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you know, advertisers still focus on, you know, 18 to 34, 18 to 49. I think that will continue. But I think when you come to these pay models, subscription models, at the end of the day, it's who is going to pay the subscription. And I think the demos are less important there. Sometimes some of the very youngest of the demos don't like to pay subscription monies. They like to take their parents' not, passwords. Not that Evan Novi Williams yeah, yeah, shares yeah, passwords. Yeah, yeah, he does yeah, not yeah, yeah. do that. Uh, and not that on occasion. I have it as an Evan, what's that borrowed password you use? I need to log into something. Yeah, that thanks, that does not that. happen. So, so so interestingly, the subscription models may be more conducive to audiences that are a little bit older. And again, there may be that dichotomy. Never forget something John Skipper said to me. And it's so simple. He, like, he didn't care what it was. He, tiddlywinks, dar- it didn't, didn't matter. Just said, you find a way to aggregate the eyeballs. I will figure out a way to monetize it. I mean, that's what it boils down to. You know, we talk about, remember when eSports, is, is, which is big, obviously, now. But, I mean, I, I remember back in the day, just what you just well, said, well, when you Scott, say back when you say back in the day, I'm that's a, that's not our casual that's, listeners that's, back. This that, is that, you know, you're, you're back in the white. day is not everybody else's back in we the day. We watched Pong. Championship Bridge. 
that that was that people were mesmerized. Oh, you by don't play that. mahjong, do you? It, oh yeah. <laughs> I can see you on one of those cruises. You and your wife on a cruise and playing mahjong. Give me that shuffle. I mean, shuffleboard. There you go. Look at this. It's. I mean, you just hit the nail on the head. And gentlemen, if there's something to watch on TV, somebody somewhere is going to find a way to make money on it. And if you can gamble on it. Got darn too. Shuffleboard doesn't sound fun, but if I can gamble on the shuffleboard, that sounds a little more interesting. Ten. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that—that's—that's that's the key to the whole thing. And now, which brings up another point: esports and gambling with fees. Can that is that going to happen? Is that a marriage we're going to have one day? I think you'll see them certainly trying and experimenting with it. And the question will be: with esports still being a bit of the wild west. Can they kind of control all the integrity issues and make sure everything is done in, in the right way so you don't have issues and challenges? I think that will be the kind of question you'll have across all of the sort of smaller or emerging sports. There will be interest in gambling on it, but you need to have the systems in place to monitor and, and, and keep the integrity well, You strong. just said something I mean, there are yeah. there are billions gambled on esports already right now. I mean, you can make an argument that esports are, are better suited and also more accustomed to gambling right now than even NFL and NBA. I mean, it is a fundamental part of the viewership experience right now is gambling on esports and a lot of that happens illegally a lot of that happens through proxy currencies a lot of that happens through in-game apps that have monetary value that you can wager on between two people um but i would argue that that there are nfl teams leagues out there that should be taking a page from esports book in terms of how it has integrated gambling into the full viewership experience we are joined by Bloomberg sports reporter Eben Novi-Williams, along with our special guest host Chris Russo, managing director and member of Houlihan Loki's technology media telecom group. And let's continue our discussion on sports rights, because right now, yes, UFC, yes, WWE, those are major rights, Chris. But if we look just a little ahead to 2021-2022, you've got major Big time, big four sports rights, including the NFL. And we're talking digital, we're talking uh, linear, the whole shebang, the big enchilada coming due. What is that world going to look like? Well, that's that's a good question, and if I actually knew the answer, uh, probably wouldn't be here in the studio today. But that's my insulting. My, no. You should be here even if you did have uh, the answer. But I think before... This month, ironically, I think the outlook was, boy, it's going to be tough for these folks to get big increases uh, in 2021-22 because of some of the pressure in the media space. But I think now, uh, with some of the buoyancy that we've seen in the last couple of deals, but I think, again, as importantly, going back to this gambling issue, I think they're going to be integrated kind of deals that might incorporate uh, the broadcast itself as well as the opportunity to promote and market gambling within the games and leverage that online. So I think on the one hand, you'll see that. And I think on the other on the other hand, you'll also see potentially joint bids that include traditional broadcasters along with some of these new media folks like the Twitters and Amazons, where the concept of having a game in one place doesn't necessarily make sense anymore. It can be broadcast one place, but then be available somewhere else, and those combined numbers could be meaningful. I'm looking for a lot of fun in the next years because of one, something you said before. You said experimentation. And in the conversation I had with Ted Leonsis on the day the Supreme Court legalized sports betting, he said, ah, everybody's looking at my lacrosse team and my arena league team differently now. Makes a lot of sense. He says he's going to experiment 
with those teams and leagues like the WNBA, we'll see experimentation, and, and both in the broadcast, in sports betting, and seeing what appeals setting up the day where those major rights fees come due. I'm curious about whether you think we're going to see a lot of fracturing in that next set. I mean, the UFC had one partner, Fox, and now they broke it out into a digital and a linear partner. I, I, is the next round going to be eight or eight or ten different digital partners? Does Yahoo get two NFL games? Does Facebook get two? Does Amazon get two? Does DAZN get two? And then spread the the linear the same way? Or is there more money that way? I, I don't. I don't think. I think the experimentation that's going on right now. One game here, one game there. I think that's just what it is, experimentation. I don't know how meaningful that really is in the long run. I think what is meaningful is kind of what ESPN is doing now. They've got the rights to UFC television, and they also have the rights to the ESPN Plus product. They can cross-promote, cross-market, reach both audiences, the the cord cutters, as well as the people who have cable, and that stuff syncs together. I think you're going to see more deals and opportunities like that where it's really integrated, not just a throwaway, let's put one game on Amazon or one game on Twitter. How much longer... Do the folks, and I'm just going to pick on them because it's the 800-pound gorilla, do the folks at ESPN look at those subscriber numbers? How long do they hold on and be like, well, one subscriber linear TV and a cable bundle is worth X versus an ESPN Plus subscriber? When doesn't it matter where they have the customer in their universe? Well, I think to, to ESPN it doesn't necessarily matter, but the fact is they have existing contracts with cable operators that pay them a lot of money for those subs, and those contracts are going to extend for however the long they're extending. And so I think it's in ESPN's interest to try to have their cake and eat it, too, to keep the existing cable universe intact and then try to, as aggressively as possible, drive new subs digitally, but subject to the contracts that they have. But this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, guys like me, the geezer guys, we're not going to go away from cable. Uh, that's always going to be there. So that audience will always be there is just for how long? I think you're going to be like the 60 minutes. You know, the, <laughs> you, you aggregate the older skewing audience, so you'll always have a spot for the geezers like you. Yeah. But yeah. increasingly, as you, I'm going to put this very nicely, Bar, as you're no longer watching TV oh, or dying that's, off. Yeah, that, that's, that was really nice. But you but. know, listen, you know, you, Chris said it earlier, 18 to 34, this is about those who spend the cash. And how do you separate people from their cash? And nobody does that better than Amazon. And they're involved in the world of sports. And we, did we not talk about John Skipper coming back? Uh, that that's interesting to me competing against ESPN you know it is it is to me it's somewhat surprising that he came back so fast I mean I, I always John is extremely talented and he seems to still have a passion for the industry it does surprise me that he's back so fast because you would think when you leave there'd be some level of a non-compete or sometime interim time or, or whatever but it is surprising that he, he came back uh, so fast well, for those who don't know Eben tell the audience for those who don't know John Skipper and what happened so John Skipper was the president of ESPN he left last year year under some uh, suspicious and confusing circumstances. He cleared the air uh, a couple months later saying that uh, he had a drug problem and that uh, he was the subject of an attempted extortion uh, as a result of that of that problem. Uh, and he has popped up uh, last week or a couple weeks ago. Uh, he is now running DAZN, which is the o- over-the-top OTT digital uh, news network uh, that launched part of Perform Group but is launching in the U.S., <laughs> This year, it's doing so with a $1 billion investment into boxing of all sports. Uh, Chris, how do you see the OTT battle playing out? Two years or three years down the line, is it still 
ESPN Plus and, and Bleacher Report as the top two? Where do you see DAZN and, and maybe even all these other ones kind of slotting in there? I, I, I believe the battle is still yet to be won, in part because there are some major rights that could ultimately drive this, including NFL rights going forward and, and other rights from the major leagues. So right now, I think we're still in early, early days where you've got UFC, you've got boxing, you've got some other things out there which are valuable, but ultimately some of these major rights are yet to be doled out, and that could have a great influence on who the winners and losers are. And let's talk to Zone for a second. They wanted to launch in the U.S. Obviously, a lot of basic uh, or a lot of the premium rights were, were gobbled up. They decided, we have a billion dollars. We want to do something in the U.S. They looked at all the sports. They decided boxing was the best chance. They built a property around that, and that's going to be their way into the U.S. market. Uh, if I gave you an OTT to launch in the U.S. and a billion dollars... Uh, how would you have have spent it? Yeah, I'm, again, I it, that's a that's a good question. I think I would clearly think of a variety of sports, not not just one. Boxing, I think, is distinctive in the sense that there's a hardcore, passionate audience behind it, and that may be a way to differentiate. But my sense is they're going to find a wide range of rights over time, and and they're going to try to make it very appealing to various niche audiences and and collect and aggregate that all into something meaningful. The voices you recognize: Michael Barr, Eben Novi Williams, and our guest host Chris Russo from. Hulahan Loki and Barr and Chris. I want to ask you about the NFL. Let's pivot a little bit. We all right. We, we don't know where these rights are going. We have this digital OTT versus linear. L- let's see where it plays out. But what about the NFL? Chris you used to work there. Are, are they doing a good job at, at messaging and some? You know, well, you know what people always ask me: How would the NFL be doing? We know they're making a lot of money, so that's good. They're doing a good job. The question is: Would they make more money can they make more money if managed differently your take on how are they doing well there certainly has been a lot of uh, challenges over the last couple of years from a from a communication standpoint and but i think in the long run the, the nfl is well managed they they do a great job of getting input from a whole host of parties when they make decisions i think they're facing some broader topics and issues around kind of youth participation in the sport going down. They were, I think, facing the issue of potential rights fee issues because of the media landscape, but I think those are maybe reversing. But I think, generally speaking, they're going to have a bright future, and they tend to make the right decisions, in part because they have such a big group of people helping to drive a consensus that usually winds up being the right thing, albeit uh, some challenges over the past couple of years, but I think they can put those behind them. My prediction, looking at the crystal ball, that one day the NBA will surpass all the other sports because it's the perfect product. It's two and a half hours. It's now for an audience for people I'm who sorry, don't have the as whole, much The time. whole game is two and a half hours or the final seven minutes? Yeah. Half, half hours. <laughs> that was just a, Adam Silver, I'm joking. Michael Bass at the NBA, I'm joking. But you, you, I know you're you're bullish on the NBA. I am bullish on the NBA and what because about, it's you're the perfect the, product. The global, it's a global product, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that this is going to surpass one day, and unless the other sports catch up, it, it, the NBA is going to be number one. Now, Chris, do you see in a world where the money increasingly is coming from media? I believe this is the first season where media eclipsed gate and in stadium revenue. In a world of OTT, in a world of let me cut up my rights, in a world of selling highlights, of selling the final minute of basketball games. Is the NBA best positioned 
to drive revenue? I, you know, I would say the NBA and the NFL, I would look at both of them. I think the NBA, as has been pointed out, has a great global footprint. They have a great young audience, great social media following. Uh, so I think in many ways, like soccer, they can be the, the preeminent global sport. Uh, but I do think the NFL has this event notion that still, I guess it used to be once a week, now maybe three or four times a week, depending upon Was that a mistake? who you act. Is it a mistake? Would you have gone to that sort of saturation? I think the saturation is starting to become a challenge. Again, I know they thought carefully about that. I think what made the NFL great was the kind of the event nature of it that also drove things like fantasy and, and other kinds of activities around it. So I think they're going to be have to be thoughtful about how they allocate the product going forward. I guess I ask this, too, because we always used to have the old Sunday games, and then Monday night, that was special. That was something that happened. But now, like you said about the saturation, you have a Thursday night game, you have the Sunday 1 o'clock games, then you have the 4 o'clock games, and then you have the Sunday night football game, and then you have the Monday night football game. I, I see Evan getting agitated here. It's like... I, I, jump in, yeah. jump in. Dude, you just call an NBA a perfect product, and NBA plays on every night of the week. But, that may be true, but at the same time, too, is that, look, you're talking about a sport in the NFL where you've beaten the living snot out of the other 11 guys, and we wanted to increase this league and the games in it to 18 games. And it's like, no, you can't do that. You, the body's got to recover. I'm with you on with, that. I mean, I don't think we should be playing football every day of the week. I just the, the oversaturation thing. I don't fully under. I mean, every way, Barb, every other sport Evan, plays Evan, I, I, almost I, I, every day. I, coming from a guy, by the way, who played something called lightweight football in college. Just so you know. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> coming football. from you know, he likes to tell people he played college football, and then you know, in parentheses, the silent parentheses. Is that not accurate? Lightweight <laughs> football. <laughs> Is that not accurate? Bar, wrap us up, buddy. Wrap we got to wrap this up. It was it was really getting good, man. That's like we're going to be talking about this more. By the way, Hart Ornstein, thank you for listening to the show very much and I appreciate the compliment. But stay awake <laughs> because you Scott's got to tell this story because I don't want you burning the hot dogs, One of our man. loyal listeners listening to the podcast on the way home and tells me fell asleep on his New Jersey Transit ride, missed his stop. And then had to Uber back home because the sultry, silky tones of Michael Barr put him out. Go NBA. Our big thanks to Bloomberg sports reporter Eben Novi williams And a very special thank you for our guest host, Chris Russo. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Thanks for including me. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Thanks for joining us. And you can listen to us talk to the biggest and brightest in the sports industry every Friday at 8 p.m., Saturday at noon, and Sunday at 4 a.m. Eastern Time here on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes. 